next week I will be away. So rather than restarting Book of Philippians and taking another break next Sunday, I decided to talk about something that is very practical. And I pray this could be helpful to many of you. I've talked about a few weeks ago about Bible reading. And best solution that I have is to have a daily Bible, physical Bible. So if you lose a couple of days, then you could go straight to that date and, and read. And in passing, I talked about a few Bible, Bible translations. And uh, there was a question about that. What's the difference between ESV and NASB? And with my own personal reading of the newer translation, I thought, why don't I talk about this? A couple of years, years ago, I've talked about this in uh, Bible study time for a couple of times. I think it's good for us to hear about this. And that's what I have in mind. 2020 ranking, I looked it up. Bible sales ranking of last year, 2020, a couple of years ago, 2020. Top selling Bible in the United States was NIV. New International Version, top selling. Number two, King James. Number three, New Living Translation. Now, NIV is NIV. King James has its own audience. King James. New Living Translation has its own audience. But what's significant is that fourth place now is occupied by ESV. And then fifth, New King James, sixth, CSB, Christian Standard Bible, that is used to be HCSB, Holman, that's, that's a Baptist translation. Number eight, NIRV, which I personally like for the children, very accurate, easier than NIV, but very accurate, NIRV, New International Reader's Version. Number nine is the message. Peterson. Number 10 is NASB. So that's the top selling 2020. And I've read elsewhere that top version of the people reading the Bible, they choose to read in King James. So let's begin with the Word of God. Some of these things will escape you if you're not, if you really do not know these things. But let's talk about the Word of God. When we talk about the Bible, what is the Bible? It is God's Word. And we talk about four characteristics about the Bible. You open up any theology books about the Bible, you will hear about four characteristics that we need to know. First is the authority. First, you need to establish the authority of the Scripture. Second thing is the necessity. Third thing is the perspicuity. That's the old language saying basically it's clear. Bible is clear. Perspicuity. The fourth is the sufficiency of the scriptures. Four things. First thing has to be established first. The authority of the Bible. Basically the question is how do you know that the Bible is the word of God? Why do we say that the Bible is the Word of God? That's the question. It is, the, it is a good question and very important question. And what do we learn? How do we prove that? Or how do we know that? The answer that you get from all those good books is that we have to look at Bible's own claim about itself. So, Bible says that the Bible is the Word of God. We say that that's why Bible is the Word of God. What's the problem with that? Problem is, it is a circular reasoning. Uh, Bible is Word of God because Bible says so. You may ask that. I remember first time reading this, thinking the same thing. But the reasoning behind that is because there is no higher authority to vindicate, uphold, 
and support the claim other than the Bible itself. Our confession names few other things, heavenliness of the matter, style, and all that. But the primary reason that we say that the Bible is the Word of God is because the Bible is the highest authority to make any claim upon anything, but especially on Bible itself. So that's the orthodox answer. That's what you learn when you go to good seminary. So that's what I believe. Now, I have given you a verse. Let's look at it in the bulletin. Same verse three times. Because I want you to see some of the differences and how later on I'm going to talk about translation. The word is in Greek. And I normally do not pronounce the Greek word because it's really, it doesn't really you know, matter. But let me do that just for the sake of Just clarifying this. The one word that is at stake here is theoneustos or pneustos, but neustos. Theo, you hear already God in it. Theoneustos. And and the scholars tell us that it is basically God breathing. Theos breathing. God breathing. But traditionally, it is translated following King James Version, as you look at it, NASB. That's where I preach from. It says this, Bible's own claim about Bible. Here it is. All scripture is inspired by God. And the meaning is, that is why it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Because all scripture is inspired by God. Next one. Same Same verse is translated in the ESV in this way. All scripture is breathed out by God. So you will say, Theos, Neustos, should say, God in it, breathed out by God. But the final one, LSB and NIV. NIV, by the way, is very accurate says this, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, why does it matter? If you only say that the scripture is inspired by God, it could mean that God has inspired certain people, just like musicians could say, musician says, I'm inspired by this art. And I compose this music. So it doesn't have to be, but it could be that when you only say the scripture is inspired by God, God could take a back seat. And once inspiration is done, human authors could write whatever that they were inspired by. So Bible becomes man's witness to God's activity. If you only have inspiration, inspired by God. So literal translation will say, all scripture is God-breathed. What's the difference? Inspired is taking an intermediary, a person, and inspire that person, and he goes out and he's writing. God-breathing, as you could tell, it is, there is more Immediacy. God is the primary author because he's breathing out his own word, yes, through men, prophets and apostles. But what is emphasized by God-breathing activity is that God accomplishes his word through men, but yet God is the primary author of his word. I could take either one. And as you know that what, what that word means, as you explain it, it should be fine. So then what we, the Reformed Christians, we believe about the mode of inspiration, then how were the people inspired? I simply quote this. This is what we think happened. Organic inspiration. The process by which God guided the human authors of Scripture 
working in and through their particular styles and life experiences so that what they produced was exactly what he wanted them to produce. One of the things, the mode of inspiration that we reject is the dictation model. That a man is caught up in the spirit and he starts dictating what God is speaking into his head or voice. But we say it's more organic. The exact mode of inspiration is mystery to us. But we will say God breathed. There is an immediacy. God spoke through man using their own learnings, life experiences, their styles of writing. Yet, because God is God, God superintended every process. God is not bypassing man, but God is using man. But yet, what has been produced is exactly what God had in mind. Because God is the author. Now, that's the inspiration. The next topic that we have to discuss is this. Inerrancy and infallibility. I don't know if you have heard about those terms. Inerrancy means that the scriptures do not affirm any errors. The Bible does not endorse anything untrue. Infallibility has to do with possibilities, and it means that the Word of God is incapable of erring or making a mistake or say untrue things. If God breathed out all scripture, every scripture, and God used men, yet God accomplished what he wanted to say, then infallibility, inerrancy, really has to come back to this concept. That is, what is known as, the term is, plenary verbal inspiration. That idea is this. Not only the biblical message, but also the individual words in which that message was delivered or written down were divinely chosen. The best statement on that is found in Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, 1978. This was written by, at the time, All-Star Team. Some of the signatories are following Greg Bonson, James Boyce, W.A. Criswell, John Feinberg, Norman Geisler, Bob Goffrey, Stanley Gundry, D. James Kennedy, Jack MacArthur, John MacArthur, Alan McRae, Okanga, J.I. Packer, Patterson, Francis Schaeffer. But the person who actually wrote down these articles is R.C. Sproul. Let's look at Article 6 there. I have printed it out for you. And this is what we say. We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts or of, the, of some parts, but not the whole. Most accurate um, description of what the Bible is, is found from Westminster Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 2. Holy Scripture is basically the Word of God written. It is not man's testimony to God, to his activity or saving activities. It is not inspired man's own personal testimony as God simply inspired that man to write whatever he wanted to write? No. What we believe, or I believe, is when God has inspired, because of his character, all that he breathed out must be infallible and inerrant. To guarantee that, then, every word must have been breathed out by God. It is not God inspiring someone a theme. And a person goes out, out of that theme, he writes his own ideas. So we have that high view of the Bible because of its author, who is God. 
If God is God and God is the author of the Bible, then it is necessarily inspired. Because it is inspired, therefore it is infallible, inerrant, sufficient, necessary, and sufficient for our faith and life. Because you really cannot give or have inerrant or infallible inspiration without the words. Or it becomes simply human product. But this is necessarily so. If God has inspired it, God must have given that person even down to a word to keep it from erring. Right, without words breathed out by God into the hearts and minds of human authors, you cannot guarantee its inerrancy and infallibility. Now, but then, the very first autograph, we call it autograph, but very first edition, let's say Philippians, Paul must have written that very first letter. We don't have that. We do not possess any of that first edition, very first copy of any of the portions of the Bible, then what do we say? Now it becomes really faith statement. Look at Article 10 of the Chicago Statement. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the orographic text of Scripture. That is the very first edition written by the authors. We affirm that inspiration is applied only to that first edition. Which, but what happened to them? Which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. Because of who God is, And because we believe God preserved by his own care, did you see it? No, it's a faith statement. But we believe God to be that kind of God. And each generation faithfully, accurately copied those manuscripts and handed down to us. Yes, there are variations. Why? Because as people were copying those manuscripts down, There were errors, but that's not inerrance that we are talking about. It is, as they were copying it, they made a mistake, human, scribal mistake. So what people had to do is to have as many manuscripts possible and put everything together and compare it and see how many versions say this, how many versions say that. Scholars say 90%, 95% accurate. We do not lose anything. That's the next statement. But anyhow, all of that we have just talked about, what we believe as Bible testifies to us, all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God. Therefore, it is the word of God. That's where we begin. And because of his character, what he would say is without error and fallacy or or lies. In order for that to happen, then God must have inspired that person even down to every word so as to guarantee the inerrance and infallibility. That's, that's kind of our confession. No Christian will say, none of the professors or some people that I know will say, you must believe in inerrancy to be saved. I don't think anybody will say that. A man is saved by believing in Jesus Christ. That is sufficient. But this is very important. Because what you believe about the Bible will affect everything else you do as an individual and everything else you do as a church. And all of this is really nicely summarized, including translation that I will get to in our own confession. And this is really against, this is 1646-7 at the time when this was written, the Westminster Confession. But in 1409 in England, in 1409, the Archbishop of Canterbury prohibited 
the translation of any biblical text into English, as well as the reading of such texts. English language Bibles were pushed underground for the next 130 years, the beginning of the New New Testament translation, until the New Testament translation by William Tyndale in 1525. Yesterday, last night, I posted up a couple of links on our Twitter account. Uh, One is the Steve Lawson's lecture on William Tyndale. What he had to do to produce first English translation, Wycliffe too, but William Tyndale's English Bible is the Bible where King James was translated from. That was the main text that they translated, almost word for word. So it's really not King James, but it's really Tyndale's. But what the man had to do to translate and produce, and he dies, by the way, but it really, it sounds like a movie. Henry VIII sends his spies across the continent because uh, he, he ran away from England, and the manuscripts being burned, everything, you could listen to it. You must listen to it. Steve Lawson's lecture on our Twitter. But let's read the Holy Scripture section, eighth paragraph. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it, was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God. I love that. You put inspiration and God breathing together. Being immediately inspired by God, we said to what? To autographs, right? First editions. And by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, the Hebrew and the Greek, they are not known to everybody. To all the people of God. But I highlighted that section. All the people of God who have what? Right unto. It's not the church. That's not the Roman church. It's not the archbishop. It's not the pope. It's not the king. Who has the right unto the Bible? God's people. They have the right unto and interest in the scriptures. Do you? Do you have interest in the scriptures? And are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated. Once again, against that law, 1409. They are to be translated into vernacular. That's vulgar language, but not bad language, but modern language, whichever language, common language, of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all. Why? Why do we read Bible? To know more about God? Yes, but for this, that they may worship Him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. That's right. Let me just uh, conclude this section. Only the full inspiration down to every word will produce full inerrancy and infallibility. Because if you have 99% inerrancy and 1% errancy, that 1% will cancel out 99% of inerrancy. Therefore, I believe God has inspired every word. That's what I believe. I think you should too. Then, now let's talk about translation, some of the translations. If God has spoken those words, if God has inspired and God breathed out every word, I as a Christian, I want to see what God breathed out in my Bible. Simple as that. I want to see what God has said. Do not tamper with words that are in the manuscripts. 
Do not say when it says brethren translated into brothers and sisters, because I get that. When I read brethren, it does not exclude sisters in Christ. When it says it is the seed, I want to see the seed instead of children, child, or something like that, son even. Why is that important? Because seed of woman. I want to see the seed of David. So things like that, I do believe it matters. But anyhow, let me show you some of the manuscripts. Modern translations, um, New King James, NASB, that's pretty much what most of you had as you were growing up. Some King James too. But King James needs to be translated into English. I try to read King James. It's just so hard. But some people love it. So when you choose a translation, there are many factors that come into play. Some things that you are familiar with, you do not want to change. Something that you know by heart. You don't want to change up some of the words. So I understand. But let me just give you some practical guide. But let me show you the manuscript. This is the manuscript. Most modern translations that if you see very first page, introduction of your Bible, it will say which text they use for the New Testament translation and the Old Testament translation. When you think about manuscripts, you talk about the scrolls. You think about papyrus, right, pieces here and everywhere. These days you could look it up on the Internet. But what had happened past hundred years or so was that German scholarship, they put together and compared all available manuscripts. By the way, since the 1500s when King James Tyndale, they translated from Erasmus' Greek New Testament, more manuscripts were found. So people who say King James is the best, you have to make that decision. But what had happened past 100 years, the scholars had done, was they compared many manuscripts and they compiled it together in this fashion. So it's not in scroll, but this is the New Testament, N.A. Nestle Allen. This is blue one. This is what everybody uses. There's another one, red one, based upon this text, but UBS. So N-U, new text, N-U text, you will hear it. It's Nestle N and UBS, red one, that's N-U. So this is the manuscript, believe it or not. ESV is translated from this, NASB, LSB, uh, CSB. All of them, they are translated from this. This is 27th edition. The most recent one is 28th, and I am not upgrading. It's the, basically the same thing. But this is the manuscript. When you open it up, you will see all these footings here, all kinds of markings, and it is remarkable. It is referring to all kinds of uh, manuscripts and differences. What is them? It's just staggering. This is great stuff. But this is the manuscript. This is the Hebrew Bible. This is this is the main text from many new uh, English translations. Translate. The Old Testament from, you see the Hebrew, it goes from this way. This is the front, and you read it. And I found my old <laughs> 2002 notes in it. But I don't use them anymore because it is in the electronic version. I copy and paste. I don't really have to look it up. Now, let me talk about briefly uh, from ESV. I briefly talked about this couple of years ago, and even to, till last night, I was debating in my own mind whether I should talk about this or not. Um, so many of us, we have invested in the ESV Bible. For me to talk about some of the things would really undermine your confidence in the ESV. But I decided to proceed upon it. So it's my own reflection upon it. ESV was completed in 2001. And when I entered the seminary, Westminster Seminary, 2002 spring, it just came out. And they gave all of us, the students, new Bible, ESV, 2001. And later on, I reflected upon it, and therein lies the genius of Crossway, the publishing company behind ESV. 
You know what they did was, they got the professors of the seminary first. You are a student at the seminary. You are going to listen to your professor. Whatever they use, you get that. So professors and the future pastors and the pastors will have influence upon the church. So it was their move to get the seminaries first. They didn't just do it, just publicized it, but they went to the seminaries. And one of our professors, New Testament professors, was on the front page saying he was the general New Testament editor, Vaughn Poitras. So you see your professor, oh, that's him. He worked on this. He's the general overseeing editor of the New Testament. Then what do you do? You trust. So professors, pastors, and congregations. That's how he went. You do not understand the excitement and frenzy that swept across the English-speaking world, both evangelical and Reformed. So they got the seminary. That's the first thing they did. Second thing they did was they got the heavy endorsements. There were very famous people coming out in public saying this is the most accurate, readable English translation ever to be produced. John Piper was the main spokesperson. If John Piper says it, who are you to argue against John Piper? He has preached to millions of people. He, he has preached from all these texts for a long time. So he comes out and he says, yes, this is the best. Francis Chan came out at the time. He says, this is the best. So at the time, what happened? I don't know if you noticed it. There were so many pastors writing their blogs. They did their blogs back then, 2001, 2002. Everybody produced something of a article saying, this is why we are switching to ESV. Everybody, everybody was doing it. Even OPC said, from now on, ESV will be our default, not official, there's no official version, but default version in all printed format, as online or whatever. Two men didn't fold at the time. Tim Keller stuck with NIV. John MacArthur, he briefly played with ESV, but he stuck with NASB. And the third thing that they did was they came out with all kinds of Bibles. At the time, Bible, you get the Bible from Bible, the Christian bookstore. You go and you pick out whatever translations that you are familiar with. It's all black, blue, or burgundy. That's all you will find. But ESV produced first pink Bible, if I remember correctly. All kinds of pretty Bibles. And they did make contribution in coming out with journaling Bible and reader's version. Reader's version removed all the verses, numbers out. So it reads like novel. There's no divisions. So it's fantastic. When you want to focus and read, ESV reader's version was great. Journaling, great idea to write down, not the Bible, but in the section, you have, you have a section to write down your meditations and stuff. And the final one was ESV Study Bible. When it came out, it sealed the deal. To this day, the ESV Study Bible is the gold standard. I think everyone should own it, along with Reformation Study Bible. But let me tell you something that nobody really discussed. That is, ESV that you have, what I have, I have like 20 ESV. ESV is based upon RSV. Did you know? When you read that first fine print in the ESV Bible, you will, say, you will see ESV is based upon RSV. So when the new versions come out, they are not doing fresh translations. They are doing minor updates and tweaking a few places. And at first, I thought, RSV? Why would you base upon anything on RSV? Because RSV came out in 1952, 
And it was the liberal scholarship trying to overturn orthodox, orthodox theology. I don't know any conservative pastors who used RSV. Do you know anyone? I don't know anybody. But nobody's talking about that. I, this is not some kind of conspiracy theory or anything. But nobody's questioning that. You know what? Let me. So that's why I brought this book. It's just to let you know so that you can make an informed decision. This is E.J. Young's biography published by OPC. E.J. Young was the uh, Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary. At the time, the best conservative scholar. When RSV came out, I remember reading about his reaction. There's a section in his biography written by his own son, page 183, For Me to Live is Christ, the Life of E.J. Young, the Revised Standard Version, 1952. When he came out, this is what he said. There is one thing above all else which should characterize a good translation, that is its faithfulness to the original. And he saw many places, including that version text, Isaiah 7.15, they changed it into young woman. And he says this, In general, however, he, that's E.J. Young, believed that the translators had taken too much freedom with the sacred text. In light of so much looseness, he could not recommend the RSV for the general reader. Only a reader with at least three years of Hebrew could be trusted with the new RSV. That's E.J. Young. RSV is copyrighted by the Division of Christian Education of National Council of Churches of Christ in the United States of America. The bodies that belong to that organization are PCUSA, UMC, RCA, Ecumenical Catholic Communion, Orthodox Churches, and United Church of Christ. United Church of Christ, I don't know if you know this denomination uh, stuff, but United Church of Christ is one of the most liberal Christian, I don't know if it's Christian, but it is denomination out there. And let me give you from their official website regarding their beliefs, United UCC. UCC, Bible, this is what they say. The Bible is used for inspiration, guidance, and for preaching. Members are not required to believe literally any version of the scripture. That's what they say, UCC. Creed, the UCC does not require its congregations or members to follow a creed. The only profession necessary is love. My, I, so basically I did best of my studies since 2002 to 2017 in the ESV. I did all mine. First few years, I didn't know much of Greek because I was learning it. And even if you knew your Greek, even if I had possessed this, problem is what? If you ever studied this, what's the problem? Okay, you're preaching from Matthew, let's say Matthew 1. You look it up, Matthew 1. You start reading it. It is very different from English. Past forms and all these forms are very difficult to parse. So unless you own a solution that goes over each, every chapter and verse and says this is first person singular, indicative, mood, and all of that, without that answer key, you, are not, you cannot make use of this. Right now everything has transitioned into electronic versions of it. Bible works. That's something that I use. Uh, Logos. Uh, and there's a whole host of other things. So you don't have to look it up. You don't have to look up the answer. It is all there. But my contention is this. Against ESV's own claim. This is what they say. In that stream, faithfulness to the text and vigorous pursuit of precision were combined with simplicity, beauty, and dignity of expression. The ESV is an essentially literal translation. And you combine this with all of the endorsements by the big names and professors, and everybody else is using it, everybody changing it to ESV. 
I mean, everybody was changing into ESV. But after spending past probably since 2009 to 2017, I really did my homework. Every time I preached, whether in Korean or in English, I would always have interlinear comparing about 10 translations, including Greek and Hebrew. I mean, for me, my verdict 2017 was that, I'm sorry to say this, that ESV was in the New Testament consistently bad. That's my verdict. I cannot recall that verse. I was scratching my head since 2009 when I really began to comparing it against this. Before that, I would just read English Bible, NIV or NASB or ESV and preach from it. But starting 2009, I'm telling you I did my homework. But in the middle of it, I was thinking, this is not this is not really accurate. And I don't mind, again, uh, here and there, mistranslations. I, I don't care. I don't care about that. But what I am looking for is consistency. It's consistently bad. It is great in certain places, but it is consistently bad to the point where there was one, I couldn't, I tried to look it up this week, but I couldn't. There was one sentence in that Greek as I was looking at. ESV broke a single sentence into two and omitted that conjunction totally out, leaving me with completely different idea of that verse. I cannot recall. I cannot recall. I wish I could give it to you. But it's been building up, but there was that final straw. So 2017, before I came here, I said, that's it. And I put all my ESV, I, I heavily invested in the ESV. I put it in all against my bookshelf, and I picked up New King James. So my verdict is, um, if you have so many ESV, like me, and, and you want to do your family devotions and whatnot, do it. When children are young, Everything is hard. So you could do like NIV, NIRV. I used to be an elementary pastor too, believe it or not. I preached to about 50 to 60 elementary students for about a year or so. I had to do my study and homework and I recommended NIRV to this. So you're right, when you're young, right, you want them to get the message. Depending on you too wherever you are. But if you want to be a serious student of the Bible, that I don't have to scratch my head and say, is this really what the Bible says? That, that confidence I do not have. I'm sorry to say. So, if I read ESV, I have to go back and read New King James or NASB. It's double work. So I just start with NASB. Rarely New King James, but they both are fantastic uh, stuff. Now, the word precision or accuracy is a loose term, I come to realize. Why? Because in the name of precision, you know what people will do is, precision assumes something is ambiguous. So I want to be precise. I thought that meant you will give me the exact wording from the original manuscript. No. In the name of precision, because I want it to be more precise, I realized many times they shuffle everything. So what you want in your translation, if you believe in the inspiration of God, in His Word, plenary verbal inspiration down to every word, and what we have is very accurate representation of that orograph, what you want is faithfulness. As E.J. Young has said, it is not so much accuracy or precision. I thought that was what they meant, but that is not. So, is it faithful to the original manuscript? Where is the original manuscript? Once again, here. So that's the question. Let me end with uh, some couple of thoughts on LSB. That's the newer translation that MacArthur's team has done. Uh, tweaking NASB. 
So I've been reading LSB. LSB really got started because John MacArthur said, Dulos must be translated into slave rather than servant or bond servant. I want that to be a slave, he said. So that's how, how it got started. I could go either way. But LSB, one of the things that they decided to do was to translate L-O-R-D, Lord, uppercase Lord, into Yahweh. That's Abner Chow, his director under him, who, translate, who translated, well, updated NASB into Legacy Standard Bible. So I've been reading it for some time. Slave, I could care less about that. But when you read the Old Testament, especially Psalms or wisdom literature like Proverbs, it is shocking how many times God says Yahweh. It is one thing for you to hear me talk about that. It's another thing to open it, open it up and read it with your own eyes. And every time you find Yahweh instead of Lord, it comes to you very differently. So I am enjoying it now. Uh, LSB has updated some of the portions of Psalms into more acrostic Psalms, A, B, C, D. So Hebrew alphabet is more pronounced. And, and some of the places that I will go and check, they did a great job. One of the personally favorite portion was Romans 12.1. That famous verse says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. LSB basically put that into this way. To present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God. It's not simply offer your bodies as a living sacrifice but living, holy, and pleasing to God. All of them modifying sacrifice. Now, so even last night I was thinking about this. Should I talk about that? Who cares about this? Does it matter? Yes and no. Yes and no. And let me end with this. I know I've taken up some time by now. I'll wrap it up. Let me ask you this. Do you play golf? You don't? If you play golf... What kind of club you use, does it matter? If you are a violinist, does it matter? I started when I was young with $50 violin like this. It costs thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. You ask a pro violinist, does it matter? If you play piano, does it matter? A couple of out of tune, something sticky, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. If you enjoy camera, I used to own that big DSLR camera. If you ask a professional wedding photographer, does it matter what kind of camera you use, what kind of lens you use? What about coffee? Do you enjoy coffee? You could drink gallons of Forger's coffee. Nothing wrong with forgers. Doesn't matter if you're a policeman. I, I thought about this example. I do not advocate, you know, guns or violence or anything like that. But if you would ask a policeman, what kind of firearm do you use? Does it matter? Well, he would probably say, well, my life depends on it. It has to be reliable. It has to fire. I'll end with this interesting story. I watched a clip on YouTube. You can look it up. Just type Tuna King. If you don't like sushi, doesn't matter. But for me, listen to this. There it was an interview of a guy in Japanese sushi of a tuna market where they auction those fish off. And he's tuna king because he processes tens of thousands of tuna a year. 
And the guy was asking, or the documentary was going in this way, what kind of knife do they use to cut the frozen tuna? Bluefin. Japanese brand. Samurai kind of sword. He said, one tuna, he, one tuna, 400 pound tuna, he bought it for $57,000 USD. But he only made 20, 20 some thousand dollars out of that. So he lost money. But it's just one example. 57,000, a fish. One tuna. 57,000. And he said this, what's the best tuna? And he was looking at the one tuna, had a cut right in the middle of the meat, and said, this is American sailor. This is Boston or North Carolina tuna. Because Japanese sailors will never do that. And he said, best tuna is this. In wintertime, you could appreciate its fat. Springtime, you could appreciate the aroma. Because summertime, tuna loses its fat. How would you know that? What's the best one? He said this. I typed this down word for word. The best tuna is the tuna that is caught in April to May in the Sea of Japan around Sado Island using fixed net fishery. That's the best tuna, he says. Did you hear that? I mean, dude, there's a tuna, they hang out in front of this island. But he says the best one is at this time in front of that island. And he says, why does a Japanese tuna, I didn't know there was tuna in, the, in Japan, the Sea of Japan. Why does it taste good, he says. After three days, tuna will smell like what it's been eating. Because Japanese seafood there, all the squid, whatever that the tuna is eating, is good. That's why this tuna is good, he says. And it has to be fixed net fishery. My guess is that less stress for the tuna. Out of tens of thousands of tuna, only a hundred will come to him like that. He says, price doesn't matter. I will buy no matter what. And he says, if you love it, you will teach yourself. I had great love for tuna, so I taught myself. Now, you ask him, does tuna matter? It's spiced tuna, everything just tastes the same. None of these that I've talked about has eternal consequence. We are talking about the Word of God. And it is a privilege for us to talk about these things, right? You look at the history. We are in a position where one of the best scholarship in 2000 history has produced for us one of the most reliable translations for us. I wouldn't say like any other person. doesn't matter whatever versions you use. Just read the Bible. That's, so many, well, that's what many people say because they don't want to recommend one. I recommend NASB, New King James. LSB, you have to just wait and see how it is going to go. Um, but if you can, read them. If you're in a position of buying a new one, buy that. If you already own so many ESVs, well, use that. Um, but you have understood what I've said because you have right unto this scriptures. Let the word of God dwell in you plentifully so that you could worship God in an acceptable manner that you may have hope in our God. Let's pray.